I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. Today I'm delighted to welcome to the broadcast Anthony Jack, assistant professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and a fellow former resident of Mather House. Jack's research documents the overlooked diversity among lower-income undergraduates, the doubly disadvantaged, those who enter college from local, typically distressed public high schools, and the privileged poor, his term, for those who do so from boarding day and prep schools. Jack is the author of the new Harvard University Press title, The Privileged Poor, How Elite Colleges Are Failing Poor Students. He writes... The experiences of low-income undergraduates are not just a product of their family background and economic circumstance. Academic life is inherently social. Focusing solely on grades or graduation rates obscures that fact. Imagine the culture shock that some lower-income students experience navigating this hidden curriculum. Anthony, Tony, as I know you, (laughs) it's a privilege to see you and to be with you here today. Thank you for having me. The essence of your work reflects the reality of elite higher ed institutions. How did your own experience, which is really the genesis of this, Mm -hmm. when you transitioned from a public school to a private school for your senior year, inform the way you tackled this project? I mean, it's it's the foundation for it. When I, so I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not only a public school kid, I'm a Head Start kid, right? So I got my start, at, you know, the government program Head Start, was able to go to um, a local public school, went, K, went pre-K through 11th grade public school. Um, I played football in high school, and my coach wanted um, athlete students, not student athletes, and I was like, I don't need football to go to college, I'm going regardless. And that always caused tension, I didn't need him for it. And when I had to have surgery after uh, injury in the game, they kicked me off the team. And I was like, well, I still want to play my, my senior year. It was, my, it was my, my, my outlet, my way of just like not doing just homework. And so I ended up going to Gulliver Prep in Miami. And that's when I experienced the biggest culture shock I ever had in my life. To go from even a good public school, as Coral Gables was, um, in the IB program, but to go to Gulliver, where I went from my smallest class at, Gu- at Gables was, uh, even with um, theory of knowledge with IB, was like 35 students to my, sm- to my smallest class being three students, right? We had teachers who had PhDs. We had classrooms that were on average 12 students. Um, uh, we had resources. We had two different computer labs. We had two different everything. Like they had a pool. They had everything. So many resources. And teachers couldn't leave from 306 to 410. Every day, I think it was the exact time because they had mandatory office hours. I was in a whole nother world. Whereas at Gables, teachers left at 2.30. At Gulliver, it was built into the, the culture and the structure of the school. Teachers did not leave. They invested an hour of their day every day to students answering any kind of questions. The one of the biggest differences, though, was when I applied to college. I didn't even have to fold up the application. I just filled it out and dropped it off at their desk. My guidance counselor had seven or eight other students who, who he had to um, help, help through the college process. When I got to Amherst, Amherst College was where I entered um, in 2003, I saw more of Gulliver there than I expected. 
I saw similar people. I saw similar um, interactions between faculty. I saw similar just contact, like high contact, high touch points between faculty, deans, and administrators and staff. What I did not expect to find was I asked myself, the, and I opened the book with this question. I said, where are the other poor black people? I really thought I was the only one because whereas at Gulliver, I knew everybody had money. Um, the black folks that were there did not. When I, got to, when I got to Amherst, a lot of the other black students I thought had money because they talked about going to Andover and Exeter, they talked about going to boarding school and private schools and flying on private jets. And then I found out that, they, that some of those students were just like me, were first in their families to go to college, um, received the Pell Grant, um, did, not come from, did not come from money at all, but they got access to these private schools that gave them access to different peoples and different um, experiences like studying abroad for an entire year in Spain so they can learn the language. And I was just like, so my on-ramp, my individual experience was actually a common thing. When I got to graduate school, no one was talking about that. No one was talking about Prep for Prep, A Better Chance, Teak, the White Foundation, all of our scholars, nobody was talking about how these programs had produced people like Deval Patrick for over 50 years. And so I started to write about it. And that just got me down on this path. I'm like, oh, well, they totally ignored not just me, but half my classmates. Because what I discovered is that on average, 50% of your poorest students, poorest black students at elite colleges actually graduate from boarding day and preparatory high schools. And so that is the unique share that we talked about from the outset, which is that um, people of color are not representative, but most students in general are not representative of the diversity of socioeconomic status and not just an elite. Right. How has the climate of need-blind admissions impacted the way you see this issue? I myself have been a proponent as the beneficiary of aid for an economics-based affirmative action, which might actually help people of color more than the present system. So yes and no. I mean, need blind, and I hope we can also talk about that $1.8 billion gift that Bloomberg gave to Johns Hopkins, Johns Hopkins to, in, to make them be need blind um, going forward. Need blind ushered in a way of doing financial aid that helped many families because they were able to say, we don't care what you can and cannot pay. If you can make it in, you can make it in. And we, and we got, we essentially, we have your back um, financially, at least on it, on, on scholarship dollars and grant dollars and things like that. The problem with that on one hand is access and inclusion are two different things, right? Granting students aid and granting students access to institutions who are able to make it past the, the admissions office. That's one goal making them feel included, or rather making them, um, making them feel as members of the community, that's a totally separate thing that we have, quite frankly, failed um, um, in doing for many years. And then also, not just need blind, but the no-loan financial aid policies that Princeton ushered in in 1998 was a doubling down on, like, we want access. We want to increase access. We're going to say zero family contribution. We're going to say um, we're going to replace all loans with grants and scholarships. And that, to me, is an even bigger step. But again, that only works, that only addresses one problem, the financial barrier to get in. But there are many more things that students face once they get in. Well, that's what you talk about. You you say here, the differences I observe in my research, your research, highlight how unequal opportunities constrain disadvantaged groups before and during college. To close this gap, 
and this sounds pretty lofty, but spell it out for me, Tony, we must address the entrenched structural inequalities that plague America's forgotten neighborhoods and neglected public schools. Yes. I mean, I'm a sociologist. And to think that just getting, just giving students like a shot of cultural capital, like taking them to the movies or taking them, sorry, taking them to the museum or giving them access to like highbrow culture is going to give them access to schools. No, that's not what we need. The fact that so many of these problems are the product of um, segregation, joblessness, the disinvestment in America's sin and cities, and the hollowing out of America's breadbasket. When you think about the ways in which these problems are place-based, when you think about students going to college, um, if they make it at all, so let's talk about the students who are actually in college. That 2 a.m. phone call that students from um, disadvantaged urban centers here are not just like, oh, so-and-so just had a baby. Um, we just want to let you know the great news. It's oftentimes somebody's more of a loss of life that they're celebrating. Like we have to deal with gang violence. We have to deal with um, disruptions in homes. So many of our students have to um, know a version of the immigrant story where they send remittances home to their family. And that's one of the reasons why they have to do so much, right? So when you think about how joblessness and segregation and crime and disadvantage are nestled in, um, in our place base, you begin to understand that these students have additional burdens that they have to bear. So it's not only studying for that exam, but it's also worry about the problems back home. But we also shouldn't think this is like an inner city problem. What about those students from the halls of West Virginia? What about the loss of the loss of um, mining jobs and the loss of, and the growing opi opioid epidemic um, in rural in rural areas? These students bring that with them to college as well. They have to deal with so much that we are not investing in as a nation to to college with them. So they're worrying about trying to decipher what, you know if this is an SN one or SN two reaction in organic chemistry, as well as wondering who who is taking care of somebody at home. Who is also doing the checking in? Who is doing X, Y, and Z? Those are things that when I talk about the entrenched problems in America's neighborhoods on the one hand, but let's not forget the problems in the neighborhoods often become school problems. The gang violence, the turf wars, the, the lack of investment, the overcrowded schools, the lack of resources for anything. For example, I remember in elementary and middle school going on field trips, right, to the local zoo, to the local park, hell, even to the library. Today, schools can't even afford to do that. We're talking about schools that give extra credit for bringing, for extra credit to students whose parents brings in reams of paper so they can actually print assignments. Right? This is what I'm talking about when we talk about the entrenched problems in America's forgotten neighborhoods and even more forgotten schools. These are the obstacles that our students have to overcome to make it into college, let alone an elite college like a Yale or Princeton or Harvard, that then they must contend with once they actually get there. We recently hosted former Secretary of Education Arnie Duncan. Mm -hmm. Give us a tutorial. What can be instructive? What can we teach? You know, clearly there were failures of that tenure, um, and there may have been some assets, um, some successes, but eight years of a president who at least professed to want to advance the yeah. pluralistic capacity of, of the country to advance the livelihoods of people across geography, across race, across religion, what happened? The promised neighborhood, a promised city approach never really took off, 
right? We focus so much on uh, on improving test scores and the race to the top right. and improving how students perform on paper that a lot of, and it's not just the past eight years, like very few people think about neighborhood policy as school policy or as education policy, right? You cannot think about, you cannot, and people in cities know this. You can give, so some programs like to give, to answer your question, I'll give an example. Some programs like to give students a laptop in high school, right? So like we have a laptop for you so you can have access to the internet. How many of those students get robbed on the way home? Knowing that that school gives out $1,500 laptops, how many, how many people actually can make it, how many people in a year can make it home, every, make it home and back to school every day without having to run, fight, or actually get, uh, actually lose that laptop? Those are the problems. Or have the internet back in Right, home. or, yeah, yeah. well, let's, let, yeah. you know, just, let's make it, let's make it, make cheap, it let's home. make it home yeah, first, right. right? So we, that's what I mean when we have to think about the way in which these neighborhood contexts amplify the inequalities, especially sure. uh, for racial and ethnic minorities. We just have to think about that. If we don't, we fail. And so I think in the last, um, what we've seen is like the promise, so the people talk often realize, like said that the Harlem Children's Zone could have been a model. And that was actually the model through which I think the Harlem, the Promise City and the Promise Neighborhoods program um, was, was built on. But how can we flood geographic areas with that, much re- that many resources and actually be scalable across the country? It's not something that we have done. Um, Pat Sharkey, who's a sociologist here at NYU, he was like, to, to tackle durable inequalities, we need durable investments, right? We can't do these one-off programs and think that it's going to overcome generational transmission of poverty and inequality that our children inherit. We need those blockbuster, like those blockbusting super, pro- super programs that actually can change and it's going to take time to change. This is not something that you can do in a five-year period or even a 10-year period. We're talking about something, you know, generational. In so do you think approach. Secretary Duncan is just not really willing to concede that you need multiple Bloomberg's investment in cities from Tulsa and Wichita to Chicago and New York, that that, that is the material that is needed, uh, a, an investment uh, from what has been divested. I mean, we need it. We absolutely need it. And as much as I'm saying, like, yes, we need to worry about, we need to invest in, like, increasing test scores, and yes, we need to worry about increasing um, um, both proficiency and, and, and excelling and in creating more AP and IB courses across our public schools and not just the really, really wealthy ones. And yes, we need more opportunities to do, I think he said like the, the, pre-K, the pre-K through 14 type of model that he, wants, that he wants to see the U.S. adopt. Yes, we need that, but we also need to realize that students don't, are not in school all the time. They so have there's to a go logistical home. financial challenge and a practical challenge and then a cultural and political challenge. Yeah. I wish you advised Speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer going forward to talk to them about how they can usher the president's interest in gang violence in a way that can be constructive so that you take the money he wants to allocate for the border and say, let's bring that to coastal border communities and neighborhoods and school buildings and teachers. Um, so I hope that you have that advisory role in the next year, <laughs> my friend, okay, professor, now that I can call you professor. In the meantime, there's a cultural challenge, and that is how do you get your message to resonate in all those disparate places where there was a concern about national imposition of an agenda on local neighborhoods during the Obama administration's tenure? Yeah, that is, 
when you talk about, because some people, when you think about the attachment to, I think also one thing that Arne Duncan said is like some jobs are gone, right? The way in which this country is going, the way in which the world is going, some jobs are not, have have a shelf life right now. They're 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 expiring. How do we get to? How do we reframe the message of not saying you all are dinosaurs and you are no longer relevant? But how do you actually make that translation? How do you actually make that jump to invest in? To have you can have similar similar jobs or similar impact, but it's with renewable energy. How do we actually get students, get young people, not to feel as if they're being attacked because their jobs are the jobs that they have known for generations are leaving? How do we not make that into something that is like um, 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 uh, what do you call it? Um, feeling their like resentment right towards a national agenda, like oh, you want to do wind farms and you want to do all this stuff. What you're really saying is, I'm taking away jobs from you. I'm taking away the jobs that you used to love. You know, they're no longer they're no longer jobs for coal miners. Now you have to do this. How do we? How do we? It's a it is a matter of reframing, but it's also a matter of education. Double whammy, if you will, mm-hmm. for those communities when you wanted to impose both that philosophy and the stringent testing, which turned out to really offend people, not in conservative or liberal, in many places in America. Um, but you're not an advocate of the testing being the criteria through which we judge this next generation of how education is successful or not successful, but rather the social intelligence that's required to keep people in school and then employed and have positive, productive lives. I mean, we need some form of assessment. Like in general, like I won't be like a totally like assessment free and, and like and that we need some form of assessment. But when it's so much of a high stakes game and we're not addressing the structural inequalities that make certain communities off the top score 20, 25, 30, 50 points higher than someone on any kind of thing because of all the other conditions that we have totally abandoned. Like the, the, the rise in joblessness and more than just the urban centers, the, the way in which we are divesting from um, support services like WIC and food stamps and all the kind of things like that that actually were like America's last like vestige of a, of a safety net. Like all of those programs that give people basic needs um, or help people meet basic needs, let alone kind of like slow the growth of the problems that we face. And we expect students to perform exactly the same on a standardized test. No. But to, sure. this also gets to your other part of your question about like what metrics should we use for college admissions and is need based, uh, sorry, is, um, is an economic model what we need? The problem with just economic model is it can easily ignore all the things that we've been talking about. If we, Patrick, to, to quote Pat again, a black family in America, sorry, a white family in America that makes $30,000 a year lives in as disadvantage of a neighborhood of a black family that makes almost 100. Think about that for a second. Because of the legacy of redlining, blockbusting, and just straight, straight up racism, where people live is so influenced by race and then by virtue of where you live, the resources that you have access to, how can we use just an economic model if we don't take into consideration the legacy of racism in this country? It's a great point, Tony. I only submit this to yeah. you wondering whether or not those issues are ones that the colleges can tackle, but the way to get the public on board. Absolutely. I see what you're saying. On that front, it is more palatable to the, to the general populace to focus on 
it plays up the American dream narrative, right? It plays up that people who may have not been given everything are pulling themselves up, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, and they are working hard. And those are the people who we should reward. People who are rewarded just by virtue of their race or their gender or their sexuality—that's when Americans like pull up stakes and like, I'm not vote, I'm not in favor for this, I'm not going to vote for this, but. Class is something, social class is something that we at once have a hard time talking about, but also have an easier time connecting to across, like, across the board, right, in different, in different ways. If you address it through an economic affirmative action model that is, that is in effect the, the you know, no boundaries, um, then, then can the colleges themselves take the leadership to address some of the, the the, the specific concerns you have about once the disadvantaged poor get to undergraduate institutions? I think colleges can go a long way in not only diversifying their campuses, but making sure that once students get there, that it's not just those in the top 10% who feel as if it's their own university. Yeah. There are so many things that colleges can do to ensure that even if you are need blind and no loan, that you are not putting up barriers to students once they get to campus. Because the real sound bites and all the attention and all the New York Times op-eds and Wall Street Journal and Washington Post really focuses on who is getting in and who isn't. That's why I thought that the administration was right, and this is a pretty contrarian take maybe that you agree with, uh, to put restrictions on the final clubs if they were discriminating. I think they were trying to address two things with the, with the decision to ban the final clubs. It was, on one hand, it was an investigation, and this is what colleges across the country were doing, is yes to elitism. Are we contributing to a culture in which um, students from the wealthiest backgrounds or the most connected backgrounds are having an uh, outsized effect on the undergraduate community? Right. But then on the other hand, it was also how do we address um, the, 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 once we actually have the data on sexual assault and sexual harassment among the student body, how do we actually create um, a system in which we're not, How do we address that issue of sexual assault on college campuses and different things like that? So everybody was feeling a pressure to investigate. And I think a, a, in the, even though they should have been doing this a, very, a long time ago to address issues of sexual assault and, and, and elitism, I think they, the, the way in which they did it was kind of converged. I, the thing is, as a sociologist, um, it's interesting because I had to at once say, I understand the impetus behind it, but did we use a machete when we really needed a scalpel? Right. Did they, the decision to completely ban right. actually do what we should have done when I actually. But also, on the other hand, we also know that if you are from a disadvantaged background and you make it into a sorority, fraternity, final clubs or secret society, you now have access to unbelievable resources that can aid your mobility after college, let alone your experiences therein. So it's very interesting that you have it. You can make an argument on both sides. I think with the administration, there are other things that I think the administration could have done and other universities as a whole. Should you ban a fraternity after certain incidents or should you bring them under closer, closer scrutiny? And right, that's something that we are facing across the country. When it comes to this suit against mm -hmm. Harvard, which is pretty much malarkey to me, how can they respond to this suit against their admissions practices in a way that's going to reassert their prerogative to give 
enfranchisement and opportunity to the privileged poor. Yeah, this 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 suit has kept me up at night because it rem, it reminds me of something that I, I remember reading. I'm just like, I wish we could go beyond what was legally defensible and do what was morally right. And the fact that this suit was even allowed to be brought in under the guise of which it was, it was, I it it really yeah it pisses me off because like for one you're using Asian Americans as like Trojan horse. yeah a Trojan horse lumping all Asians together. Um, knowing that you're not talking about people from Laos, you're not talking about people from Cambodia, um, you're talking about a, you're even, there's a whole bunch of stuff I just, I, I hate about it. I love Jennifer Lee at Columbia, really like pushing us, like how, like when you talk about Asian Americans, that's a very diverse group, and you are not even issues of class. I think what this suit is going to force people to do, and and one thing I'm scared about is always saying diversity as a good, as something that makes, quite frankly, just our white students better um, and having to justify it even more away from the original intent to this now diversity paradigm that we find ourselves in. And so I actually don't know what we are going to do. There are some people who are proponents of using first-generation student status as a way of doing it, which parallels the economic version, the uh, economic approach that um, that you that you spoke about earlier. It still does not pay attention to or take into account all the kind of like structural inequalities that we talked about. Um, some people are are advocating for similar, more like just class-based measures of different of different uh, of different tiers. I actually don't know, and it depends on how narrowly defined the judges are going to be in their decision. At the end of the day, they're attempting to legitimize this notion of reverse racism. That's what it's about. It's about, is it not? I think it's more sinister than that. I think it's just saying, like, who's deserving of these institutions, period. Well, the most sinister would be a dystopia of... Or, or not even a dystopia, a, a uh, time machine back to yeah. the Civil War era. <laughs> no one's arguing against legacy admissions. No one is arguing against athletes getting preferences. No one is arguing they, against a lot of stuff that... They didn't even take the drastic steps that were required, really, that need to be instituted. Yeah. What are they suing for? Let's take deep breaths, Tony. <laughs> and thank you for being with me today. Uh, thank you for having me. And thanks to you in the audience. I hope you join us again next time for a thoughtful excursion into the world of ideas. Until then, keep an open mind. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming. Continuing production of The Open Mind has been made possible by grants from Ann Olnick, Joan Gans Cooney, Lawrence B. Benenson, the Engelson Family Foundation, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, 
Joanne and Kenneth Wellner Foundation, and from the corporate community, Mutual of America.